Welcome to This Sustainable Life, Solve for Nature. Our guests are the heroes that are working to save our world from climate change, pollution, and the destruction of our natural world. We hear their stories and solutions, and then offer them a chance to act, to take on a challenge to make their own lives more joyful and fulfilling through sustainability and living by their values. We focus on leadership, awareness, action, and the environment. We hope that you join us in building a community dedicated to living better sustainably. Kim McCoy is an oceanographer living in San Diego, California, and is the author of Waves and Beaches, The Powerful Dynamics of Sea and Coast. He has studied the ocean, waves and currents, and their effect on our land and lives for decades. He has seen firsthand and studied how the oceans affect our coastlines, climate, and weather patterns, and has a unique ocean-based perspective on how our world is being ravaged by climate change. Today, we discuss how climate change is affecting our beaches and planet. Not just the sea level rise, but the currents, the oxygen levels, and life. He certainly knows more than anyone else about the ocean, but how much does he know about sustainability when it comes to his own life? Let's find out. Here's Kim McCoy. Kim, how are you? I'm fine. Ahoy there, Eugene. It's great to talk to you. It's great to have you on the show. I've been reading your book, Waves and Beaches, and I've been really enjoying it. It's an amazing book, and it's beautiful. Well, it's a labor of love between what Willard Bascom did originally back in the 60s and then updated basically in 1980. And I took on the task and the people at, at Patagonia did a wonderful job at the book design. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my background is in engineering. So we learn a little bit about systems and things. So I'm not completely naive to the fact that the ocean is really intricately connected to the planet in a lot of different nuanced ways. But I think your book really, really captured that depth of connection in a really enlightening way. So it's really great. Well, in this new edition, I've tried to expand the significance, and I'll call it the tentacles of the coastline, including things such as rivers, dams, and deltas, and enhance some of the shipping aspects and ship routing and containers and things that we are intimately involved with, although we don't necessarily recognize it. You know, all your clothes that you recently, I think, moved from Japan to Hawaii, all those things are probably not carried with you in a suitcase, but they're probably in a container. And that container is on a ship that goes from point A to point B. And if there's adverse weather, that ship can sink and those containers can be lost and insurance rates can go up. So it's all raveled into everything. And the climate changing, our weather patterns on land uh, influence how much rain we see at the coastline and the coastal dynamics of sediment transport. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that one of the big things that I really realized in reading your book is that I think that we're kind of all used to hearing about geologic timescales when it comes to things like mountains forming and continents shifting and things like that. But I think very few people consider the ocean and its movements and changes on those kinds of timescales. But you discuss things like waves that happen in timescales longer than a human lifetime. And that to me was just really amazing to hear about. Yes, I tried to include things from what are called capillary waves that are almost so small that you can't see them and happen very rapidly out to timescales such as sea level rise and what's called Milankovitch cycles that happen way beyond normal human lifetimes, but they're still happening. It's sort of like a leak in your roof. Just right. because it's drip, drip, drip doesn't mean it's not happening. Eventually it causes massive damage and it it's episodic. It doesn't just suddenly creep and creep and creep. There's an, an event that will occur that will change your life. Mm -hmm. And the new edition that came out, also, you decided to take on the challenge of updating the book to consider the aspects of climate change. What was that challenge like? It was not an ignorable task. <laughs> the last edition of Waves and Beaches did not even utilize the word climate change or changing weather patterns, other than in geological times, which is covered in the first chapter. And bringing in well-documented data sources and not expressing just opinions, but based upon 
data and things that people, you know, Hurricane Katrina is pretty much undeniable that it occurred and that people died and houses were lost. That's undeniable. The cause of that, people can argue over. But the statistics are those sorts of things are happening more and more frequently. So independent of why they're occurring, I have my opinion that certainly humans have their fingers in it. Regardless of what one may believe, they're occurring more frequently and the repercussions are more and more significant. Right. Yeah. And what do you say to those people? Because I imagine you probably encounter those people sometimes, the people that say, maybe you say that you're seeing these changes, you're observing these changes, but the world is always changing. Everything is always changing. This is not because of us. The, the world has its natural cycles and things. What do you usually say to those people? They're absolutely right. Nature does have its cycles. However, the rate of change that we're experiencing now on Earth is greater than civilization has ever experienced. The last time things changed this rapidly as far as weather change was before any civilization, way before writing. So there's no written record. Generically, let's say around 12,000 years ago, there's a period of rapid temperature change. Luckily, over the last 4,000 years, we've had very, very stable weather. And that's allowed civilizations to develop. So if you went back 20,000 years ago, sea level would be 400 feet lower. Whoa, <laughs> that's 120 meters. That's right. quite significant. That means anybody that was living 20,000 years ago, and there were certainly humans alive then, they were, if they were on the coast, they were, they're now under 400 feet of water. Right. That, I would say, is a significant change. Now, we're not expecting a 400 foot rise in water. However, we have experienced about a foot change. So, you know, it's very significant. It, it varies from area to area, but six, six inches to a foot of 15 to 30 centimeters in the last century. In some areas, it's actually larger than that. Mm -hmm. And if you're in a port, harbor, or just the dynamics of the beach face, that will change because of rising sea level. Right. So in those times that the sea and the oceans were drastically different from how they are today, we kind of know the reasons behind why they changed at that time, right? Right. In, in a nutshell, basically, there was a bunch of ice in colder zones. Uh, currently, most of our ice are, is in the polar regions, a few glaciers here and there, in addition to those polar regions. And, you know, I if you went to Michigan, you know, Michigan was covered with the ice during the last last glacial period. And parts of northern Europe were covered with an ice sheet. Mm -hmm. And that dynamic changes. So, and the sea level was lower. So as the ice melts, things move towards the poles, the water, in essence, because it's above sea level at the poles. Well, not in not at North Pole, that's sea ice there, but certainly in Greenland and northern Canada. And in Siberia. And with that, you have, a, in essence, a change of where the location of water is. In this case, it's water that's changing from solid to liquid. And those changes are not only just the water melting, but the increase in water temperature causes water to expand. So seawater expands. So about well, over half of sea level rise is just because water is warming. And so it's Probably most people just think, oh, it melts and the water gets higher. Well, it's the water warming. So independent of the ice melting, water warming is a sea level rise problem. Right. And this is something I think that's probably the thing that we hear the most when it comes to climate change and the ocean. We hear climate change. That just means the oceans are going to get higher. But I imagine that that probably isn't the only effect that climate change is having on the oceans. Is that correct? <laughs> You're absolutely right. So, for instance... Just recently, I think it was 2019, FEMA, so the um, Federal Emergency Management Association or agency, I think, as uh, uh, the expanded acronym for FEMA, uh, FEMA just changed its flood plans. So their flood plans, national flood plans, ties into flood plan insurance programs. And so the new flood plan maps have been updated. Well, what does that mean for a person living in a new floodplain? That means their insurance rates are going to go up. That means that revenues to real estate companies and lending agencies and insurance professionals, those are going to go up. That's great. But that doesn't 
really make housing more affordable. That means, you know, if the, the longest cost, the most affordable house is a house that lasts a long while. <laughs> you know, if you have to rebuild it every 30 years, like for some reason we like to do in this country, you know, that's not very affordable at all. At all. It certainly is the most af- profitable for the builder, for the banks and the real estate agents, mm-hmm. but it's not affordable housing. So this change in sea level, if we don't change our permitting methods, we'll continue to have people being housed in locations that are in the new floodplains that are not only more expensive to insure, but those houses will disappear in an event. You know, Galveston in the year, I think it was 1900, several thousand people were killed in Galveston, Texas, when a hurricane, an inundation storm surge, basically removed Galveston from the map. Well, those things are occurring. You know, Hurricane Sandy in New York and other areas are proof of that. Right. You don't have to ask why. You know, if you want to go a step further, yeah, ask why. But it's occurring and it's occurring more frequently. Right. And I imagine those hurricanes too, there are deep connections there with more hurricanes occurring and ocean currents and that, that sort of thing as well. Yes. In the new edition, I talk about that. There's what's called, I think, accumulated uh, cyclonic energy, uh, ACE, some people refer to it. And uh-huh. that's basically if you take all the hurricanes that occur during the year, and you look at how strong the winds were and how long they blew for, that is an indicator of how much energy is being dissipated. And that accumulated cyclonic energy is actually going up statistically. Hmm. And we've had some of the strongest years in the last decade. So not only is a frequency of hurricanes going up, but also the maximum intensity is going up. So there's... There's a a new dynamic. We don't necessarily fully understand it, but the data is there. So that's pretty irrefutable. So we better make changes. Right. So it's not only that it's just changing our beaches, but, you know, it'll change our weather patterns and our climate patterns and things also. Is that, are those some of the biggest changes? What are, or I guess, what are some of the biggest changes and what are the things that will affect me most? Let's say climate change is affecting well, you, my beach. Sure, it's going to make my ocean a little bit higher, but what, what does that mean for me? Well, you in Hawaii, it won't make massive changes because it's volcanic and they're very new mm. locations geologically. But let's go to the Gulf Coast and the East Coast of the United States or the Ganges, Brahmaputra Delta between Bangladesh and India. So low-lying areas of the world. So let's go to the U.S. So let's take Florida, Panhandle of Florida. Beautiful beaches, wonderful, great. I've been there. I talk about it in in this edition. And you have a meandering of the jet stream. Some people call it atmospheric river, whatever you want. And instead of going just staying in the northern latitudes, it now meanders more. It bugs its way down into Texas and into the area of uh, the pan, northern panhandle. And suddenly you get a massive dump in a storm front of water, rain. And it inundates the, inundates the area. I think it was Hurricane Harvey uh, had a combination of rain and storm surge, which is a big double whammy. You're living in, in the panhandle, you're you know 30 miles from the coast. And what happens? Well, you get a big rain and darn, just happens to be a hurricane approaching the coast. Now what happens? That storm surge doesn't let that water, it's just been dumped on parts of Florida and Georgia, doesn't let it flow out to the sea because the sea level is now higher because of the storm surge. So it backs it up. It's like your, you know, your toilet backing up. It's like sure. not going to go anywhere. It's going to go somewhere else, uh, not going to go where it usually goes. And that causes damage, certainly if you're in a floodplain. So the changing weather patterns far upstream in the watershed, so really people shouldn't ask where they live, what city or town, it's what watershed you live in, because the changing weather dynamics of the watershed affects what happens at the coastline. Mm-hmm. Now you get a big storm, and now you can have sandbars and, and uh, coastal islands, barrier islands, completely removed because of this high water and the big waves from the hurricane. So it does a new dynamic on the beach. And we see those things happening. We see them happening throughout history. It's just sea level is rising and our rain patterns are changing. 
So it's it's a pretty big triple whammy in that case. Right. Yeah. And I imagine having this increased sea rise and all of these extra effects of, of having more rain and all that kind of things also end up leading to changes in patterns of erosion as well, right? What kind of changes are we seeing there? Well, the coastal erosion, let's, let's look at the beach face, which is basically where the end of the wave sort of squashes up the beach, uh, what's to what's called the berm. Uh, so the berm and the offshore bars sort of exchange sand with sediment through the year. Basically, the the bar gets bigger in the summer. Oh, in the winter. Sorry, in the winter, the off the berm is eroded and it moves offshore, and and then it reverses that cycle in the summer. So the beaches get flatter generically. So in area where you have a, a sediment deficit, you'll get massive erosion. Now, where does the sediment deficit and how is it different today from 100 years ago? It's massively different from today. About 40% of all the sediments running down the major rivers is now backed up in dams. Really? So we have a massive sediment. So for instance, Colorado River. Boy, great to see the Grand Canyon. Wow, where's all that sediment go? You know where it goes now? It used to go into the Sea of Cortez between Baja California and mainland Mexico. And it doesn't reach, not a drop of water reaches the sea anymore. And all that sediment is not going in into the ocean, into the Sea of Cortez. Likewise, the Columbia River, which produces about 40% of all the hydroelectric power in the U.S., multiple dams along there have sediment built up behind the dam structure. And that decreases the sediment in the coastal zone. So when you starve the beach of sediments, like it has been over the last, so in the 30s is when the the dam construction really started heavily in the U.S. Since the 1930s, that's 90 years, there's been a massive damming process, not only in the U.S., around the world. And that has led to a reduction in the amount of sediment. That reduction in the amount of sediment in the face of raised, rising sea level is a disaster. Right. Ends up kind of being a double whammy there. Yeah. Even triple when you have stronger storms. Right. What about for people who live inland. So let's we have all this erosion and things happening at the coasts. We're seeing a lot, there are a lot of the rising seas. But if I live inland, does that matter to me at all? Does the rising sea level change anything for me? Um, I'll give you a, a hypothetical, which has certainly been, has occurred in some place. But let's just take the port of Galveston mm -hmm. in Texas. Mm -hmm. Very important. You know, major shipping for hydrocarbons, or look at any container, the Port of Oakland or something like that. Mm -hmm. So let's say you have a, an intense hurricane at sea. You lose your ship. You lose the containers. What happens? Insurance rates go up. Mm -hmm. Now, the cost of that shirt you're wearing, or those tennis shoes, or those, you know, the bicycle that you just bought, all those things that are transported by containers across seas, the insurance rates have gone up, right. which increases prices to you. So if you don't, if the society doesn't spend money, not spend money, have the foresight and spend money, <laughs> have the foresight first, because money doesn't solve problems, it just creates revenues. So have the foresight to create harbor structures and shipping and ship routing and weather forecasting capabilities, the costs of shipping will continue to rise. And for instance, we, we just had a... Um, you know, a, a hack uh, with the storage facility in uh, the shipping was Colonial, I think it was. Uh, yeah. A pipeline. With a pipeline, there was a hack in there. That is an indicator of what happens. So, you know, those are going to occur with or without sea level rise. Uh -huh. uh, however, that's an indicator of how intimately connected commerce is now. Now, that pipeline is analogous to a pipeline that is supply of hydrocarbons in and out of the Persian Gulf or the North Sea or the Gulf Coast, now that the U.S. exports hydrocarbons. So when you have a, I'll say, a catastrophic event, that will affect the pipeline of commerce, and it affects virtually everybody in this globalized world. So remember that 70% of the surface of the earth is liquid, and not 70% of the population lives there. Right. So we have a, a knowledge deficit from being at sea. Now, luckily, I've spent years of my life at sea, and I have a, a dual vision of the, the Earth, shall I say, I have a, 
certainly a, um, an aquatic version and a terrestrial version. And when people don't have a view of the ocean or a view of Earth from the ocean, it's hard to recognize how intimately connected our daily lives are with the ocean. So you can live inland, but hey, what you're getting, you know, when they move a barge up the Mississippi to supply, you know, <laughs> Nebraska or, you know, Iowa or someplace way away from the coast, that cost of those goods moving up the Mississippi is intimately connected with where those goods came from, which crossed oceans. Right. I imagine that, well, I know that these days we're seeing you know, countries that, that are, you know, smaller island countries and things that are starting to really see the effects of climate change and some that we're just losing to the sea. What are some examples of some of the countries that are currently managing the effects of climate change and, and how are they dealing with it? Yes, I brought the South Pacific islands into this new edition of Waves and Beaches. And in particular, I talk about Kiribati, Kiribati. Mm -hmm. And for over a decade, they, that's a little island, a little island nation in the South Pacific, multiple islands. And they have been relocating for over a decade, trying to relocate some to Australia. They're trying to purchase land in various parts of the world. And what's happening is relatively complex. So as sea level rises, you can also have land sinking because of pumping out of, of fresh water. So pumping out of the aquifer, that's happening in many areas of the world. But anyway, the waves in the South Pacific in a coral atoll, they rush over the spur and groove arrangement, which is sort of like fingers. And the waves go up over that and into the atoll. And that causes a circulation through the atoll. So if the intensity of storms and the direction from which these storms are coming, the large waves, that changes that dynamic because this spur and groove alignment is basically perpendicular to the direction of from where the waves are coming. Mm -hmm. And so that causes the reef to be stressed, but it also causes the dynamic of the lagoon to be stressed. And it also, with coral bleaching, which is because of the warming of the seawater, the reef itself is in jeopardy, massive die-off, over half of the coral reef in Kiribati is been dead now from a bleaching event, I think it was 2015. Mm -hmm. And because the water is now rushing up over the inundated land, the freshwater aquifer is being polluted, if you will, the salt water. So they can't use the fresh water anymore for crops and drinking. So it's this dynamic that is really, really harsh for the people in many South Pacific islands. And also in, as I mentioned, in, in low-lying delta areas in you know, India and Bangladesh, one example, certainly in, in the U.S. Mississippi River Delta. And this, this is not at all hypothetical. So, for instance, with the change in sea level, the, there's a change in legal jurisdiction. Mm. So this has already occurred in federal cases in the U.S. courts, where because sea level has risen and where the coast is now has actually been pushed in when you have this very gradual slope you have a little erosion event and the definition of federal versus private jurisdiction in most areas is defined by the mean low low water mark mm -hmm. mean low water in some areas it varies throughout the world mm -hmm. and because that location has now been pushed inward let's say just 100 feet the entity that owned that land before, if it wasn't the federal government, it was a private hand. They no longer legally own that. That's been litigated and upheld in federal court. Right. So now you go, okay, I lost 50 feet of my land. Well, it doesn't really matter too much unless you happen to have any mineral rights that are existing there. You'll lose your mineral rights. Sure. You'll lose any rights that you have to that land with a rise in sea level. And so the low-lying Mississippi Delta is a an extreme case. I mean, they have subsidence because of multiple reasons. Um, some of it's pumping water out of the freshwater aquifers, some of it's sea level rise, and some of it is related to the dikes that have been put along the Mississippi River fingers, if you will. Mm -hmm. And because of those dikes, the flow of water is increased when you have a storm. Not the not necessarily the total volume, but the speed at which it moves. 
And now instead of meandering back and forth and depositing sediments randomly, it shoots it out the end of the into the Gulf. And so you lose that sediment. So there's big pulses of sediment. And that's how these things are episodic. Those pulses of sediment don't occur like they used to, being spread around, meandering around the delta. Now they're being pushed out to sea and lost forever. So coastal erosion in delta areas is a problem all over the world. You know, the Egypt in the Nile River Delta experienced that after they built the what is now behind Lake Nasser, the, the dam mm-hmm. in the upper Nile. That completely changed the dynamic in the in the Nile River Delta. Change the fishing, there's subsidence, there's erosion. It's a, the entire catastrophe. And that's happening in most low-lying areas with deltas. So for the smaller island nations, climate change is kind of just knocking the legs out from under them and disabling their water systems and things. And then for governments, it could actually start to threaten the stability of relationships between countries and things as well, could it not? Oh, absolutely. If you look at the country of Indonesia, their capital is Jakarta. Hey, most people know that. Most school kids know it, right? Mm -hmm. Well, for quite a while now, they've been looking at relocating Jakarta, Hmm. a national effort. Really? From the top down, because they've spent about 20 years of trying to build some seawalls and dikes and stuff like that. But the inundation is too high a rate and the civil engineering costs are excessive. So they've actually thought, okay, let's just move the capital to another another island in Indonesia. So, you know, yeah, it's changing... You know, the capital of Brazil is now Brasilia, which was located way inland, not because of climate change stuff, because of other you know, geopolitical things. However, climate change is a geopolitical driver. And countries such as Indonesia is a perfect example. Mm-hmm. South Pacific islands, island nations, perfect examples. Low-lying deltas, perfect examples. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that Things are on the move. Unfortunately, the U.S. doesn't have a national policy on coastal issues. Hmm. That's a real deficit. Is that something that you're you're pushing for, or you or you're seeing any kind of pushing for in the government? There is a bill, but it's sort of stopped. It's from the uh, the person Gravilla, I think is his name, mm-hmm. from Arizona. Uh, there's a bill, but it's stalled to have a national policy about coastal issues. Mm -hmm. There's a wonderful example that we can follow, which is from the Netherlands. The Netherlands has codified what to do in the face of rising seas. Now, we all know about the the Dutch uh, boy who sticks his finger in the dike and saves the universe (laughs) or doesn't as far as the Dutch were concerned. So the Netherlands actually codified after that 1950s thing they codified that, I'll speak in U.S. terms, so the federal government is obligated by law, it's been codified that in the Netherlands, they must act when sea level reaches a certain level, and be it from storm surge or other. And they do it from a cost-benefit analysis side. They look at, okay, if the sea were to reach North Sea in that case, a certain level, how much infrastructure would be damaged? How much critical infrastructure would be damaged? And what would that cost us? And they go, okay. Case one, it goes up you know, 30 centimeters a foot. What happens? Okay, we're going to lose this infrastructure. All right. How much will it cost us to replace that infrastructure if we let it be damaged? Oh, you know, I'm just pull out a number of billion dollars. Oh, how much will it cost if we build fortifications or disallow certain key infrastructure to be built there. Oh, it's going to cost a lot less. Okay, we'll do that. So they actually build those things or in some cases don't build in the low-lying areas. So this country, the United States, does not have a national policy. And so it's they basically wait for a disaster to happen like Katrina or in Miami, they're getting flooding more and more frequently. They're spending, I think, $50 million on pumps. Well, okay, well, they should maybe just not build They shouldn't permit anymore, and they should codify that so that building permits are not issued in low-lying areas that are now within the National Flood Insurance Program jurisdiction. So that should be in a national level, not 
every individual city council deciding it because sea level rise and climate change is not only a national issue, it's an international mm-hmm. issue that transcends all borders. Right. Is that kind of what you feel the first step should be for America? Do you feel like they need to start codifying some of those things? I think that would be a wonderful first step. I certainly am in discussions with some entities about that, mm-hmm. local and on some international levels too. And that is, I hate to put it in, in you know, cost-benefit analysis vantage point, but for, <laughs> for some reason, that's how our societies seem to think nowadays. Uh-huh. You know, I think of it more like if we don't do this, somebody's going to lose their loved ones. Someone's going to lose their house, their family pictures, their dog, their cat, you know, their car, all these things that they've worked hard for and perhaps generations before have worked intimately and passed on to the next generation. Those will all be lost if we don't do anything. And if one can create a national, at least, approach to these issues, then we can, as a nation, approach things. You know, we, we decide that we want to have NASA and send space probes to, the, to Mars and people to the moon. You know, we don't, we don't have people arguing, no, no, that should all be done. You know, everybody, we shouldn't have a national policy. No, we have this umbrella thing that helps organize it. We say this is our policy. We subcontract to individual private entities. Well, we don't even have that national policy you know, we can't say we're going to Mars in climate change. We can't say we're going to protect the coastline in coastal wave dynamics. So we, we don't even have the initial policies. So those need to be created. And then things will fall into direction when you have some leadership that defines significant issues. And I think coastal repercussions of climate change are intimate. You know, until we have those things, we're going to have piecemeal. We're going to have everyone arguing about who's going to replace the train tracks when they fall into the sea. And here in Southern California, we have an issue where the train tracks are currently in danger of falling into the sea. They just had to shore it up. They figured it'll cost a billion bucks. And they, you know, they're arguing, is it the municipality that's going to pay for it where it's falling into the sea? Is it the federal government that uses that as a critical infrastructure? They, they don't even know how to argue over it. And so it leads to litigation and the end effect is the citizens of the country pay more with their lives or their property or their money. We need to start moving as a nation. What about for me as an individual? For a lot of us out there, we say maybe we're not in government or maybe we're not scientists. Maybe we don't have a big voice. What can we do as individuals to start to tackle climate change, in your opinion? There are national resources that an individual can look at. So there's a a FEMA flood map update. So you can go there and there's a wonderful map, just like Google Maps, and you can zoom in and you can click on, oh, what happens if it increases by one foot? What happens if it increases by three feet? And you can find out if you're in a floodplain area. And you can, also find out which watershed you live in. So for instance, there are some municipalities that have almost a schizophrenic approach to coastal management. One side, they permit sand mining upstream. Mm-hmm. They get a few, you know, few dollars for some permit for somebody to harvest a whole bunch of sand. But then at the same time, they have coastal erosion downstream on their beach in the same municipality, and they pay for beach nourishment. That's schizophrenic. (laughs) Find out if they're doing beach nourishment in your area and find out if they're permitting sand uh, mining. So sand mining is, you know, find out if they're armoring the coastal zone where you live. Find out if the dikes, so let's say you live inland, find out if the dikes, what elevation they are. Are they capable of withstanding a hundred year storm that is no longer a hundred year storm. They're occurring more frequently. So maybe it's a 10 year storm and make sure that your municipality has adequate pumping facilities to deal with the over topping of those dikes. And there's a whole bunch you can do to find out, are you perhaps at risk? And this is not, you know, the sky is falling things. These are resources. You can just look and it's national information. It's you're not listening to some 
guy saying the sky is falling. You're looking at actual data for the areas where you live. And so you could look at that. That's mm -hmm. very easy access. And speak to your neighbors, speak to your people. So as, as they say, think globally and act locally. Uh -huh. When you do your commute from point A to point B, do you need to do that commute? And on that commute, are you passing by any low-lying areas? What are the bridges you pass over? Are those in jeopardy due to a 10-year storm or a 100-year storm? Become aware of where you are. Move if necessary. You know, it's much easier for a human to move than a company to move a factory. So, you know, the individual has bargaining rights in this case. So a person can get involved very easily. And there are lots of resources for that. Yeah, I think that that's always kind of one of my ways of thinking about it, too. I think that for a lot of people, they, they come out with the doom and the gloom and, and you're all going to die and you're causing extinction of animals and things. But I think that for um, a lot of people, the first step should just be becoming more aware of the environment that's directly around you. Because if you look, you're going to see changes that have come to the world around you already from climate change. Well, a lot of these issues of climate change, just look at the roughly, the numbers vary, but it's roughly 50 billion tons of carbon equivalent are being injected into our atmosphere or its environment per year by fossil fuels, by human existence. And that energy use is intimately connected, I'll call it excessive energy use, um, excessive in historical, natural, historical terms. Mm -hmm. The amount of energy being dissipated now is unparalleled in the history of the earth. So we should look how we use energy, how we produce energy. And those things are much better looked into with people like Bill Gates has a new book out recently, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. Uh -huh. Just, uh, and they have methods by which you can look at the big picture. Now, I'm I'm primarily concerned with the ocean. So... In, in ocean, I'm, I'm involved in some ocean energy things. For instance, uh, there's some really cool things. There's a, a device called a wave glider, and it use, utilizes a wave energy to move itself horizontally. Huh. And it has sensors on it, and telecommunications, solar cells. The, the waves propel it forward by extracting the orbital motion of the waves. And the data that it collects is then transmitted via satellite. So electrical needs are from solar cells, but the propulsion is actually from wave energy. Moving horizontal. There's another device called the wire walker, which moves vertically through the water column. So it moves a bunch of sensors up and down to the water column. And the wire walker can perform this process by once again, extracting the orbital motion of the waves to move itself up and down a, a cable. With no no electric no stored electrical energy whatsoever, you know, other than moving a little solenoid, and that that doesn't take very much. And then uh, there's a company called SeaTrek. They're actually down here in Southern California. They're uh -huh. looking at ocean thermal energy conversion. So they're looking at propelling devices vertically through the water column. They've already created some of these devices, and they go to a thousand meters. That's over. 3,000 feet deep in the ocean and cycle up and down. And they can do this infinitely, basically, instead of the 200 profiles it used to get out of a device using batteries. And then you'd have to throw away this ten dollars to $20,000 instrument that just be scuttled in the ocean. With this new innovation from SeaTrek, they actually go up and down in the water column thousands and thousands of times. So uh, that that's sort of thing adapting so you don't have to use batteries but use this low level i'll call it energy gradient from the waves or from the temperature gradients to basically turn that energy into data you also have wave driven pumps and these pumps create an, what's called an artificial upwelling they come up it, pro it provides cold oxygen rich water the colder the water, the more oxygen it can dissolve. So it comes up and it has nutrients and that can cause kelp to grow, so marine algae. You can also do aquaculture with fish, so mariculture. So you can grow fish, cold water species. You can grow algae. And the algae that grows is actually a process of sequestering carbon. So 
it can draw down our carbon footprint. And there are groups that are doing this on a massive scale. They want to do this square kilometers, square miles of this artificial upwelling, if you will, to cause algae to grow that through the photosynthesis, it, it bonds with, it utilizes a carbon dioxide to build biomass. And when that biomass dies, it goes down in the ocean and then is sequestered. So it takes it out of the loop for a few thousand, if not millions of years. That's incredible. Well, it's amazing what you can think of if you spend long enough time at sea. Now, utilizing the ocean's waves and temperature differences is not a new thing. We've done this for decades. People have used cold water for air conditioning. Actually, in the big island of Hawaii, there was a project, Ocean Thermal Energy Conversion Project, that they brought up cold water to produce power and the byproduct was it had cold water. So they ran it through a radiator and cooled it. The city of Honolulu, where you are, I think, uh-huh. has a multi-million dollar, I think it's a hundred million dollar project to provide seawater air conditioning for business air conditioning. Really? Yeah. And then it goes way back. It goes back over a thousand years, actually. There's uh, tidal currents. So you can get with an increase in tide. They had tide mills. They had hundreds of these things all over the world. There's still one active in on the east coast of England. I visited a few years ago. And these the increase in sea level with the high tide is then captured in a pond. And then they wait for the tide to fall. And they basically have a waterfall of water, runs a water wheel. And that grinding process grinds, grinds grains and whatever you need. So it's a mechanical thing. And that's been done for thousands of years. So there's all sorts of things that humans have done for long periods of time. It's there. They're low energy levels. But the best solution is not always something that's connected to a fossil fuel supplied electron. You might only need a very, very small level of things. It can be something as simple as a gas meter or a water meter that just needs a very small amount of energy and reports, you know, every few hours. Mm-hmm. Little tiny things where we can use these temperature gradients or height of the water gradients or the motion of the water. So those things can be extracted that energy can be extracted and provide power to civilization. The innovation we see these days is absolutely amazing. It really is. I think that's probably a good spot to shift over to the next part of the conversation, which is a little bit more of a personal aspect. We've talked a lot about climate change and a lot about the effects and things on climate change, but I was hoping that we could talk a little bit about your own personal feelings about the environment. I imagine spending so many years at sea and you must have a lot of amazing experiences in the ocean. Well, I'm still alive and I've had a few close calls. Um, I've spent, uh, I've done nine trips to the polar regions. I've done over 40 major field experiments, domestic and foreign, funded by National Science Foundation and DARPA and interacted with NATO for years and oceanographer with the Navy. I've worked on nuclear reactor, cooling discharge water. You know, my longest time at sea has been with no landfall is 47 days. And so, you know, I've, I've, you know, been to Greenland many times, Antarctica, and did a calculation once. Somebody asked me how long I've been at sea. And, you know, this book is called Waves and Beaches. And I calculated once that I've had about 15 million waves <laughs> has rocked my body. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. That's amazing. And, but, but somehow each wave is sort of ethereally uh-huh. different. Each one is a little different. So you start looking at the ocean from a different vantage point. I think it was Malcolm Gladwell in his book, Outliers, where he talks about, I think it was a 10,000 hour rule. I've far exceeded 10,000 hours at sea. You start looking at it from a more global vantage point. And, you know, certainly life at sea is not easy and solutions at sea, you know, most people that think things up from land and never been to sea, those things usually fail because the sea hits very powerful yes. and changes very rapidly. So my view of what can be done from a 
oceanic vantage point is that there are many, many things that can be done. However, how we produce energy and how we utilize energy really needs some fundamental changes. Otherwise, the ocean will continue to be polluted. Remember, everything that is all the fracking liquids and all the chemical spills that occur in the Mississippi River Delta, uh, Basin ends up at the Delta. So everything that hap happens upstream anywhere in the Mississippi watershed ends up downstream, ends up in the Gulf of Mexico. Eventually, it's taken by the, by the Gulf Stream around the Florida up into the North Atlantic. So we're all connected. Mm -hmm. And having that large picture helps a mature view of what individuals might be able to do on the beach face in the coastal zone, because that's where my expertise really lies. And there are many things that can be done. Yeah, it sounds like you really, really care a lot about the environment and specifically about the ocean. So I'm curious to know then, for you personally, what does the environment mean to you? Not necessarily what is like the scientific definition of environment or anything like that, but for you personally, your own personal connections? Do you have specific memories or specific feelings when it comes to the environment? Well, I can't remember when I first experienced the environment. Most of us can't, but I can remember going across the Pacific and the Atlantic as a child through the Mediterranean. I lived in Europe for many, many years, also in Asia. I lived in Japan really? for a while too. And I will have to say that, let's say, take a period, I'm working at a desk and it's been a stressful day. And I would go into the sea. I'd go body surfing or surfing or windsurfing. And my hypothetical blood pressure, if you will, drops. I feel more one with the universe. And that's not a just words, idle words. I would get calm. I can remember many times body surfing, just jumping into the sea with a pair of fins and speedos, if you will, and feeling so relaxed. I've been freediving since I was 11. So I feel really at one in the ocean, at one with the ocean. And it's a calming effect. Take me out of that environment. And I think I'm more agitated. I think most people probably are because we developed, you know, living in caves under bushes and, you know, other things, skins, whatever you want. And it wasn't really until the industrialization process that started, you know, arguably a couple hundred years ago, that humans started to be removed from the environment. With the advent of electric light, people started staying up longer. Weird hours with the advent of the internet. I mean, everything's available at all times. It's really disturbed our normal daylight cycles, our eating habits, our spring and summer and winter and fall dynamics that humans all have been accustomed to for thousands and thousands of years. That has been disrupted. It's been disrupted by wonderful technology. I mean, we're communicating now using Zoom. It's a fantastic technology, but it is disruptive to other things in subtle manners. And we don't know the social and psychological aspects of how disruptive it is. So back to your question, my relationship with the environment, I try to keep it intimate. I still swim in the ocean. I go run on the beach. Uh, I don't live too far away from Scripps Institution of Oceanography. I'm down in the coastal zone several times a week, sometimes daily for weeks on end. I paraglide. I started paragliding wow. about a decade ago. I'm, I'm in the atmosphere. You feel the warmth coming to you, the transition from cold air to warm air when you go into a thermal and you start to cycle you, like a bird. You go around and you stay in that warm core, buoyantly going upward. You, you realize that it's all driven by nature. In that case, the sun is heating just like waves, actually. Waves are really solar events. You know, the wind creates the temperature differences on Earth, and because of temperature differences, winds come to being. 
And the wind blowing over the water creates the small waves that eventually grow into the big waves that surfers like to surf on. And having that understanding of that, I'll call it thermal dynamics, the sun-driven dynamics of surfing solar waves, in essence, and soaring in solar, solar thermals in paragliding and body surfing is so intimate to my being. You know, I can't run along a coastline without thinking, oh, there's a backwash. Oh, in another two minutes, the, the edge of the water will go back down because of what's called surf beat. So if I want to go around a headland, you know, I just have to be calm. I have to wait a little bit. I can't just run and try and expect nature to instantly respond to my needs. I need to respond to nature's needs. Right. It really sounds like you've connected with nature and the environment on very profound and deep levels. It sounds beautiful when you describe it that way. It's absolutely amazing. Also, you know, being connected to nature also means as we get older, we also return to dust. So, you know, the, this, this ride on nature's wave is finite. You know, every wave eventually mm -hmm. reaches the shoreline mm -hmm. and dies upon a beach face. Now, Willard Bascom, for instance, and it's mentioned in this new edition, Willard Bascom's ashes were spread in the surf zone at La Jolla Shores in Southern California and San Diego. And so anytime you want to commune with Willard Bascom, just go into the surf zone. He's spread out there somewhere. And it's a dynamic. We start somewhere, we, we grow, and eventually we diminish just like waves upon a beach. So I wonder now, based on those feelings that you have talked about, those feelings of, of that immense calm and relaxation and being connected to nature, this is a totally optional choice. It's totally up to you. But is there something that you can think of that you could do to act on that feeling? Now, it doesn't have to be the biggest thing or the most important thing. You're not trying to solve climate change overnight. That's impossible. But the point is just to act on something that you care about. It's not about the size of the action. It has to be a new behavior, something you're not already doing, and preferably something measurable, something that you do yourself, not just telling other people what to do. Is there something that you've always wanted to try, but maybe not gotten around to in your own personal life? Well, I've tried and been successful for most of my adult life. I ride a bicycle quite a bit. That diminishes my use of carbon-based fuels. I like to run. I used to run everywhere. It was funny. People would look at me sometimes. I just sort of run from point A to point B because it just, it was invigorating. And, you know, I'd get out of my car, I'd run to the entrance of a store. But people think I'm in a big hurry. Uh -huh. Well, no, I'm not in a hurry. I just sort of enjoy doing it. And I get to do something else because of that additional time that I have now available because I got there earlier. And in a big picture, there are certainly things I mentioned earlier about the upwelling, carbon sequestering with algae, marine algae growing in the open ocean. That's something that can have a profound impact mm -hmm. on the sequestering process of carbon on Earth. That could be a negative offset. Me personally, I try and minimize what I do. I certainly, well, certainly not during COVID, but I haven't flown during this period, huh. but I certainly have driven. And strangely enough, I drive a diesel car. <laughs> now, interestingly enough, for the same amount of energy on a diesel engine, you travel a greater distance. Now, with an electric car, totally different metric for the amount of energy you drive an even greater distance. But there's some infrastructure issues associated with electric cars and those things, which I have not yet embraced. Many of my friends have. I haven't. But a diesel engine actually has a very low footprint compared to a gasoline engine. Huh. It's 40% efficient versus generically 30% efficient. Well, okay, uh -huh. that's good. And it takes less energy to make diesel than it does gasoline. So uh -huh. that's a simple little thing. Huh. Not really 
globally changing. And if everybody was using diesel, we'd maybe have particulate problems and other things. But, you know, electric certainly seems like a good direction, but I travel a fair amount. And unfortunately, some of the distances that I travel, I think my record is eight hours without getting out of the car in one stretch that wouldn't have worked in electric. I mean, not stopping, continually driving for eight hours. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bladder. It's a bladder control issue. Um, <laughs> right. But the carbon, the carbon sequestering, and working with companies in the ocean environment that help diminish the need for what's called primary battery storage. You know, like the lithium battery, not not rechargeable, but lithium primary battery mm -hmm. or you know, lead acid battery kind of stuff, which, which is rechargeable, removing from that process, the need for stored energy so that you can harvest naturally occurring energy flux, if you will, and turn it into power. That's, that's something that's compelling. Mm -hmm. Certainly uh, heating of water for uh -huh. domestic heating in some areas, heating of hot water is, takes up about half of the energy use of a home. And I don't take, I try not to take long showers. It's hot water, which is gas fired. We have a gas fired heater, but you can do, you have passive solar. So mm -hmm. something that could certainly be done. And I have jerry rigged some things to heat my own water uh -huh. sometimes and also heat my own air. Those things are very easy. Many countries have very successful passive heating systems, but that's, that's a, a different segue away from the right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is there, is there anything that you would be wanting to try on your own? Like anything in your own personal life that you would want to change anything that you want to just try? It doesn't have to be something that you do forever. It could just be a week of doing something a little differently than you usually do just to try it out. Well, we've recently shifted. I mean, we've never been much of a meat eater. Uh huh. Uh, certainly, and if you look at the carbon footprint of building a cow, uh -huh. it's quite significant. Yeah. Or building a pig or, you know, chickens are the least carbon footprinty, if you will. <laughs> uh -huh. But never really been much of a uh, farmed meat eater. Uh -huh. So I just recently made a whole bunch of lentil soup and uh -huh. other things. And so using less and less, ah, one thing that I've done that I don't think any other guest has done, I've built this and I use it occasionally. Uh, I lived in Italy for quite a few years and certainly have a, an espresso uh, intense coffee need in life. Uh -huh. And I built a solar powered espresso machine. Basically, it's not the espresso machine itself, but it's a method to heat. So it's basically a, a few heat pump tubes uh -huh. that heats a, a piece of aluminum up. So it's the sun sun's rays comes in, heats up these tubes, and that heats up a flat aluminum plate that uh -huh. I created. And that's enough to give me a full espresso. I mean, it's really a cup. Uh -huh. It's not just a, a hit. Of espresso, and I use it every so often. So it's completely away out of the entire production cycle. It's a solar powered espresso. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. Well, yeah. I studied I studied math and physics, so I could calculate these things, and luckily, uh -huh. I did get it right on the first time. <laughs> Very nice. That's amazing. on a really sunny day. It takes about ten minutes, which is uh -huh. about what, and I can preheat it if I will. I can just pull off the shape the. The on-off button is basically mm -hmm. the shade over these uh, solar tubes. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how many joules, J-O-U-L-E-S, you know, the uh -huh. measure of energy, how many joules I save by doing that. But I do save energy by using my solar espresso machine. Yeah, we've had uh, a, a wide range of people taking on challenges on, on the show from doing things as big as selling their car and just going carless to people just buying like a reusable spoon because they've always wanted to have a reusable spoon that they take with them on all their trips and things. So we've had the full range, but we've never had anyone uh, talk about building a solar coffee maker. That's for sure. <laughs> well, anyone who wants to know about it, just contact Eugene <laughs> Bible and he knows how to get a hold of you. There we go. Very <laughs> oh, you nice. can email to Patagonia too. You know, oh, people, okay. people at Patagonia probably know how to still get a hold of me. <laughs> 
Very nice. Well, is there is there anything you wanted to try taking on? Any new challenges? I've been doing that for quite a while. I can't say, Eugene, that there's something that I could take on that would change. I don't eat much meat. I ride a bicycle all the time. I run places. I don't know. You, what do you want me to take on, Eugene? <laughs> well, we don't want to. Yeah, well, we don't want to force anything on you here because that's we find that it's most effective when the people think about you know how they feel about the environment and when they start thinking about um, the things that they can do that that are meaningful to them. You know, because you know anybody can you know Google like things to do for the planet, but a lot of those things generally we find tend to not stick so much as much as the things that come from the people who think of them themselves What by thinking what is meaningful to them. Well, just riding waves and beaches is a very significant effort in that direction. Mm. Hopefully it will help inspire at least one person to have a more global view of the coastal zone. Mm -hmm. And things, small things being changed by climate change, you know, harbors, ports and bridges can be damaged by storms and sediment movements. These things people need to be aware of, you know, just one storm can move sandbars into a shipping channel right? or wash out the foundation of bridges. You heard just about this bridge recently. Uh, a large crack in a highway bridge uh, that spans the Mississippi River blocked a, a bunch of barges and ships. I think about a thousand vessels got stopped. Really? Traffic on the Mississippi. The supply chain was halted. Being aware of those sor sorts of things that, you know, that block, it blockaded the Mississippi for days. Hmm. You know, it's like a blockade of Gaza or embargo of Iran, but it's not driven by politics. It's driven by the changing nature of our climate. And every country is being affected. So Waves and Beaches, this new edition, is my effort to help people have an understanding of how small actions on their own, awareness to help these things not to occur, mm -hmm. can change the direction in which our country and hopefully the rest of the world. I mean, we're actually trailing how many countries are doing it. So we have good examples, mm -hmm. especially the Netherlands. So, you know, pay attention to those countries. I've, I have, and there are many references in Waves and Beaches that allow a reader to take action. There's mm -hmm. climate, climate change, there's about 10 or 15 of them in the, one of the appendices. And so by writing Waves and Beaches, that was my first little effort. Mm -hmm. I'll get back to you on what I decide to do next. There you go. Sounds good. Well, I really appreciate you coming on, Kim McCoy. Your book, Waves and Beaches, The Powerful Dynamics of Sea and Coast. It's an amazing book. And if you surf, I don't know if you surf, Eugene, but if you surf, there's a lot of information about surfing, about new innovations in surfing, and certainly explains to the reader how being on the face of a wave is really a solar event. And right. so there's stuff about shipping. One of the things I, I discovered was there's over 750,000 miles of fiber optic cables underneath. Now, you and I are almost certainly using a fiber optic cable to communicate. There's, there's 1.2 million kilometers of fiber optic cables and uh, several hundred thousand miles of pipelines. And those are going on below us all the time. So being aware of those things, whether you're surfing above or telecommunicating, every one of those pipelines and fiber optic cables has an entry point and exit point that concerns us all. So get a copy of Ways and Beaches and hopefully you'll find something that will make you more aware of how intimately connected we are. Kim McCoy, thank you so much for coming on. And thank you very much, Eugene, for having me. And I'll have to say ahoy until next time. Thank you again. Kim McCoy was a great guest with years of wisdom. I highly recommend you go out and find his book, Waves and Beaches, The Powerful Dynamics of Sea and Coast. I wasn't lying when I said it's a beautiful book. Not only is it informative, it's pages and pages of beautiful ocean photography are enough to use it as a coffee table book. I couldn't get him to find a challenge that resonated with him today, but that's okay. 
The most important part of the personal challenge is that it resonates with you, that it puts your life more in line with your own values and adds to your life, makes your life more meaningful. If you do a challenge just because the New York Times said you should, it probably won't resonate with you and you probably won't end up doing it for the long term. Even if you can't come up with a challenge right away, there will always come a time when something will strike you. And that's when I recommend acting. If possible, have someone walk you through this exercise that I do with my guests. If it's meaningful, you'll keep it up. And it won't feel like a drag. You'll enjoy it. And you'll find that your life is more happier and more fulfilling. Thanks for listening, all. Until next time. Hey guys, Eugene here from Verdant Growth and host of This Sustainable Life, Solve for Nature. I've been doing this podcast for a few months now, and I could use some help. I just don't have the time to edit episodes like I did during the pandemic, and I've had to hire an editor. I don't have enough to pay them for as many episodes as I'd like to do per month. If you're interested in supporting me and my podcast, try donating, one time or monthly. Even one dollar helps. I love doing this show, but I can't do it as much as I'd like without your help. If you can't donate, just hit that subscribe button or tell your friends. Me and the rest of the world could use your help. Let's work together to make this planet we call home a great place through sustainability. Thank you.